Could it be our health freedom is truly under fire? Is it possible that our public health officials have been lying to us? And maybe, just maybe, we're not aware that vaccines are causing harm? How do we seek the truth when doctors have been led to believe in the marketing slogan that vaccines are safe and effective? This show will highlight the importance of informed consent. My name is Dr. Paul, and welcome to our show, Against the Wind, Doctors and Science Under Fire. Welcome to my new show. What do you think of that view? Sunrise over Portland, the town I work in. We're on fire, folks. I'm your host, Dr. Paul. Together, we stand united for health freedom. This show will focus on medical freedom, your right to informed consent, and that means you get to choose what happens to you and your body and what happens to your children. Whether it's vaccines, pharmaceuticals, or procedures, informed consent should always be your right as an individual, and this is what this show will focus on. You don't need the government, public health officials, or even your doctor in most cases to be healthy. We certainly don't need pharma and their toxic profit money-making products. You should definitely be wary of vaccines which carry no liability whatsoever. Have you noticed that there's some fear-mongering going on? Fear is the tool of the oppressor. Remember that, who's pushing the fear? The antidote to fear is knowledge. So again, welcome to Against the Wind. This will be your resource for the information you absolutely need. We're going to highlight stories of doctors who've been under fire for standing up for their patients' rights, for standing up for informed consent, for giving information that, well, frankly, the establishment doesn't want us to give you. We're gonna highlight articles that have been shadow banned, not getting the attention they need, or outright removed from the literature just because they have a message that mainstream media doesn't want. The science is there and you need to know it. This will be your source for this. And we're absolutely going to bring to you information about vaccine injury. That's what woke me up, folks. I mean, I'm a mainstream trained doctor from Dartmouth, went through residency in UC California and taught residents and medical students for years. But it wasn't until I saw with my own eyes Kids regress into autism. When I saw vaccine injury over and over to the point where it was undeniable, that's what woke me up. And I want you to have the same opportunity to see with your own eyes, hear the stories for yourself of families that are undergoing immense tragedies due to vaccine injury. But it wasn't until I saw for myself time and time again, vaccine injury before my own eyes that I woke up and the understanding that vaccines can cause harm went from my head to my heart. This week, We'll feature, this is our first episode, so we're gonna feature my story. There's some interesting things that have happened to me. So Libby, who's gonna be a co-host, will be actually interviewing me about, hey, Dr. Paul, what's been going on with you? So that's gonna be fascinating. You're not gonna wanna miss it. We're then gonna talk with Janet Preston. She is an RN who has a son, Rob, who is vaccine injured, and she's passionate to share with you so you can know more about the kinds of things that can happen. She also has a story of her own advocacy and the challenges she's had in just trying to share the truth in the town that she lives in. I'll be having a forthright discussion with my co-author, Jack Lyons-Wheeler, about our study that was just published, the very study that led the Oregon Medical Board to emergently suspend my license. And then I'm gonna have Bernadette 
share. Bernadette is, uh, works with Informed Choice Washington, and she's going to actually also share with you on a weekly basis important updates so you don't miss important information you need. I'm actually going to be asking her about her open letter to the medical board, which was something she just did on her own that was amazing. You're going to want to learn more about that. So let's move on now to the interview that Libby is going to have with me. Hi there, I'm Libby. I'm gonna be your co-host today for Dr. Paul's new show, Against the Wind. Um, I've known Dr. Paul for a few years now through other physicians in the community, as well as uh, being a member of his great practice, Integrative Pediatrics. So I'd like Dr. Paul to give you a little bit of a background on his interesting place that he grew up. Thanks Libby for co-hosting this show with me. You know guys, I can't, question myself. So Libby has been kind enough to say she'll be the co-host when yours truly needs to be questioned. So I really appreciate you being here. Absolutely. Um, I did have an interesting childhood. I grew up in Zimbabwe, Rhodesia when I was there. My parents were missionaries, dragged me kicking and screaming over, no I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> at age four and I actually finished high school over there. So my first five years or so were in an African village learning school in Shona, the African language. I used to dream in Shona. Uh, I truly uh, was a part of that culture. I mean, it's a, it's a big part of who I am. Uh, as you imagine, wherever you grow up, I mean, all the way through high school, that just becomes a big part of who you are. So I was going through the um, civil rights movement that was happening yeah. here in the United States. I was there in Africa going through that same thing. Yeah. Wow, okay, so from there, you ended up going into medicine specifically pediatrics. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I always smile when I think about how I ended up in medicine. My dad was a minister, a theologian, and little boys want to be like their dad, so I thought I was going to be a minister. And in high school, I realized I liked girls. Oh dear. Uh, and in a weird adolescent way, I couldn't wrap my head around being a minister and liking girls. So I decided I'm going to have to do something else, abandon that career choice. So I looked at medicine as a great way. I always loved people. I loved doing things that would help the community. And so I chose medicine. I went to Dartmouth Medical School to kind of get to the point. And in that environment, I fell in love with pediatrics. It's interesting how it happened. I had just come off of my internal medicine rotation at the VA hospital where uh, the veterans were smoking, drinking, and then coming in for you to patch them up. And I'm thinking, this just is futile. <laughs> and then I go to pediatrics and, you know, moms are amazing. They really care for their kids. You're a mom, you know. I, I see you in that practice. And it's just, I love working with moms and parents who care about their kids because they really want to do the best they can for them. And I happen to love kids. So it was a perfect fit for me. Right. So I know as you've become uh, more adept at working with children, you really started to focus in on vaccines. And I know you've published several books. One of them is specifically focused on vaccines, though. Could you tell us a little bit more about that? Absolutely. So um, starting teaching residents and medical students for five years, I then went into private practice. And I've been in private practice for 26 years. I've been 35 years as a doctor. Uh, but it was in the early 2000s I was starting to question the wisdom of our CDC and AAP vaccine schedule. I was starting to see, actually four years in a row, 2004, 5, 6, and 7, I had a normal kid at one become severely autistic by two. And it was like, 
this isn't right. I mean, when I grew up, I didn't see a single case of autism. And in general, kids just seem to be getting sicker and sicker. More asthma, more eczema, more ADD, ADHD, more neurodevelopmental problems, autoimmune problems, diabetes. What is going on? So as a pediatrician, my thought is, well, I'm the guy that's supposed to have the answers, and I didn't. And so the more I studied this, the more I started realizing, interesting, my unvaccinated patients are the healthiest. Right. And I would tell people this, and they would just like, yeah, right. Don't you know, vaccines are safe and effective, which, by the way, is a marketing slogan, not a fact. Yeah. Um, all pharmaceutical products have risk, and vaccines yeah. have risk, but they also have benefit. So the book you're referring to was published in 2016, The Vaccine-Friendly Plan. Yep. Um, my mom told me, did you have to put a big bullseye on yourself? <laughs> so uh, that book outlines what I consider a reasonable alternative way of vaccinating. Because I was having more and more parents coming and saying, Is, isn't there a safer way or a different way or a better way to vaccinate? We're not comfortable with the CDC schedule, this one-size-fits-all concept. And so using the best science that was available, that book was written with peer-reviewed literature as references, and it outlines a different way, right? So um, the, the powers that be, like the CDC, for mm -hmm. example, I don't think we're real happy about somebody challenging their system. Well, I think that goes back to what you spoke about of now being a bullseye, because I know that you really um, have been focusing on things, and so you started into a formal study to track this. Maybe you could elaborate a little bit more on that and when that was published. Absolutely. So prior to writing the book, I had actually written up an entire study with a data set from 2015. I couldn't get it published. If you're trying to publish something that shows vaccines in a negative light, it is extremely difficult. So fast forward to this past year, actually in January of 2019, uh, the Oregon Medical Board has been after me for about three, four years. Ever since publishing that book, they just keep coming with some bizarre complaints that aren't really patient-driven complaints. They're mm -hmm. just sort of phishing. Anyhow, in January of 2019, they had a complaint saying, I needed to prove to them that the vaccine-friendly plan that's outlined in my book was as safe as the CDC schedule thought to myself, this is weird. Uh, the CDC's never proven that their schedule is safer than doing nothing, right? But I thought, okay, I'm going to take you at your request. Mm -hmm. I'm going to gather the data. So I hired an independent guy to come in, pull the data for every patient born in my practice since the day I opened. So June 1st, 2008 till January 27th, 2019, when I pulled the data set. Okay. That data set was then de-identified and we got that published in a very good peer-reviewed journal. So that article, which could really be called the vaxxed, unvaxxed study, the yeah. first real-world data study that's actually been published in the world, came out November 23rd was the publication date, but it actually wasn't released till a week later. And what happened the next day? Well, four to five days later, I get a call from my attorney who's been representing me with the board, and he says, Paul, the news isn't good. Uh, I got a call from Warren Foote, he's the prosecutor for Oregon. He said the medical board had an emergency meeting and at 5.30 p.m. on a Thursday afternoon, they released an emergency suspension of my license because I was a threat to public health. Mm -hmm. So even though just two weeks earlier they had had a request asking for how much profits I'd made from the sales of my book and what relationships I had with supplement companies, like what does that have to do with anything? Mm -hmm. Okay, we're gathering that data for them. 
boom, all of a sudden I'm an emergency because I published this article that, sorry folks, this article lays it out for you. So we'll have a link in the show. You're going to have to get a hold of this article and we'll be talking about it more at another date. But the unvaccinated kids are hands down significantly less ill, less ADD, less eczema, less respiratory infections, less skin problems, eye infections, ear infections, pain, just about anything we looked at was significantly reduced in the unvaccinated patients. Now this is real world data folks, so what can I say? It's what I was seeing, but it's now published in a peer reviewed journal. Right, so taking all of that into consideration, can you let us know what's next for Dr. Paul? Well, folks, this show is a big piece of what's next. Against the Wind with Dr. Paul, it's doctors and science under fire. Our focus is to bring to the world the information that they're not getting in the mainstream pharmaceutically sponsored media, right? Because if you're sponsoring me and you have a particular message you want, you're not gonna allow a message that goes against that. And that's partly why you need a show like Against the Wind. So we can bring to you the science that you should know about that's not getting press, the science that's being actively suppressed, and also the stories from doctors, from scientists, and from families themselves who are vaccine injured. You know, it was the vaccine injury that took it for me. I was starting to realize we got problems. We have problems with mercury, aluminum, formaldehyde, too many vaccines too soon, activating the immune system too, too much, creating autoimmunity and allergy. But how do you get that from here to here? You need to hear and see the stories for yourself. This show is going to do that for you. So that's what I'm excited. I'm also, I have a, a few other projects I'm working on, but for, for, for the moment, I'll just say, let's focus on Against the Wind. Perfect. Well, thank you everybody for joining us today. Thank you, Dr. Paul. We look forward to seeing you guys in some future episodes. Hi, Rob. Hi. How you doing, buddy? I'm glad you were able to come see me today. I don't think we've met before. I'm Dr. Paul. Say hi. Mm. Hi. <laughs> so, Rob, what do you like to do for fun? What do you like to do? You like to swim? And you like to ride horses? <gasps> you ride horses? Yeah, he's great. That's he's, great. I, like uh, always great, but he really is. <laughs> I can't yeah. what he does. I think the last time I rode a horse, I was like younger than you are, Rob. <laughs> Do you have any pets at your house, Rob? We do. We've got a little dachshund named Charlie. Okay. Do you like to play with Charlie? Rob? No, he does not. He's never been interested in our dog, but he actually is living in a, a not in a care home, but with um, a gal that works with him, and they're actually next door neighbors now. Oh, they, that's they, perfect. They've got a couple of labs and a cat, and he loves he, well, he loves labs when they're puppies, and then he loves their cats. So. There you go. Well, that's great. I'm. Thank you, uh, Rob, for coming on the show. That's that's really really nice, really great. <laughs> yeah, I really appreciate you. And then uh, Janet, thank you for coming on the show. Uh, I'm going to introduce you to our audience, you and Rob. Uh, okay. Janet is an Air Force veteran, a registered nurse of 25 plus years and the mother of Rob, who's, I think you're 29 now, right? He'll be 29 tomorrow. Tomorrow, whoa. You turned 29 on my 30th anniversary. How's that? Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So um, anyhow, 
there was some vaccine issue at 15 months and at some point we'll chat about that. Um, but you, you, Janet, you've founded and run for 18 years an agency that provides one-on-one -on -one services for children and adults with intellectual disabilities. And now you spend most of your time advocating for health freedom and against medical mandates. Hey, we have a real connection there. Uh, you're particularly concerned about the vaccine safety and the lack of informed consent, as am I. And with the COVID vaccines in particular, but basically all vaccines given in this country, that seems to be the, the basic approach, right? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So thank you for coming on the show. And uh, thank you for Rob for being willing to come on the show as well. That's really, 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 really nice of you. I have, uh, I'm a pediatrician, so Rob, I, I took care of, I would have been like the kind of guy that would take care of you when you were a little kid. And now you're almost grown up. <laughs> He's like going, I don't know if I like being here, mom. Do I have to be here? <laughs> yeah, whenever you're done with him, I think he's ready to bolt out of here. <laughs> you, yeah, Rob, you can take off if you want. Thank you for being, thank you for just so I could meet you. I wanted to just kind of know that that's Rob. And now I know when I hear your mom talk about you, I know I can put a face with the name. Right. So thank you so much. You going to say bye? It's so suspicious right now. Okay. Yeah. You can leave. You don't have to stay. Go, go, go. <laughs> Sorry about that. That's what we deal with. No, no, no. That's good. And thank you, Janet, for letting the world just at least get a glimpse of, you know, what, what you're dealing with and what it's like. So. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, maybe if you don't mind, let's go way back to the beginning. So, you know, this was like some years ago when Rob was born. And uh, if are you, are you willing to go that far back? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. Let's let's start. You know, as a pediatrician, you know, we haven't actually talked so about your story. So this is what I would do if you were in my office. I would want to hear about you know how was the pregnancy, how was the birth, and then let's start there. Okay. Well, my husband and I were both active duty Air Force at the time. He was an air crew and I was um, intelligence analyst. Um, so there was no drugs, no, I mean, very little drinking and certainly none while pregnant. Um, but we were both fully vaccinated, um, you know, worldwide deployable. So I had had a lot of vaccines mm -hmm. and so did he. I had never had any bad reactions or any problems. I got pregnant right after he came back from the Gulf War. Um, completely uneventful pregnancy, no problems at all. Um, like ate healthy, continued to exercise. And now my water broke when he, I was about 36 weeks mm -hmm. and I had Rob and he was fine. He was um, six pounds, six ounces, APGARS of nine. Wow. Had no problems. I got zero meds during the um, labor and delivery. They had sent the, the, I had gotten no ultrasounds because the radiologists were still in the Gulf. And I got no anesthesia because the anesthesiologists were still in the Gulf. So oh you my. It was basically the base clinic where I had him. Yep. And, but again, it was uncomplicated, no problems. We went home after like two days, I think, and um, met all his developmental milestones at every well baby appointment until he got his vaccines at 15 months. And okay. that day he got his MMR, yep. he got a uh, hemophilus influenza, hip vaccine and a polio. 
Okay. And he never again met his milestones. And when you go back and look at pictures of him, he was a he was talking, you know, wasn't like complete sentences or paragraphs sure, or whatever, sure. because that's not normal for a, a baby that age, but he had plenty of words. And like I said, he had walked on time, did everything on time or a little bit ahead of schedule. Um, but if you look at pictures of him at 14 months, bright, you know, great eye contact, really smart, really interested in things. And then his pictures at 16 months, he kind of had that, that kind of that mask where his mm-hmm. face kind of, you know, you see that where the, you know, you yeah. can look at it and say, well, something's wrong with that kid. And, I mean, I hate to put it like that, but it's the truth. And, you know, one side of his face drooped a little bit. And you wouldn't notice that being his mom and being busy. And like I said, you know, busy working and taking care sure. of a baby and that kind of thing. And we were, at this point, we were over in Hawaii. So we didn't have any family support or family around or whatever. Um, but he was doing fine until those vaccines. And after yeah. that, he never again met his milestones. He stopped huh. talking. He lost every bit of eye contact. And by two years old, he, had, he was diagnosed with autism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, first we thought it was, was hearing loss, but it was not. It was much worse than that. So. Yeah. My goodness. I'm so sorry. That story that you just shared is the same story I hear literally hundreds of times. Yes. And so, you know... When I first saw something like this, it was 2004, and it was my first time witnessing a kid who was fine at one and regress into, you know, severe, full, nonverbal autism. And I thought, oh, that's a coincidence, right? I mean, one case. Um, Hundreds of cases that I've personally heard that sound so close to exactly what you're saying. It's not always just the MMR, but that's a frequent culprit, it appears, in many cases. Um, You know, we now have some ideas of of the mechanisms, of course, of how and why this is happening to some people. Too many, right? Way too many, which is why you and I are, are both so passionate about sharing these stories so people understand that vaccines are not what safe and effective like we're being told um you know my your son's the same age as my youngest and um yeah he 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 didn't he wasn't affected as severely but there was definitely the lights went out wow and yeah i never questioned vaccines again my you know his dad and i both had plenty of vaccines had no problems it just, I, I, I just had never seen anything like it, but interestingly, okay, and this was back, you know, years and years ago, and when it, when Rob was diagnosed, it was five to 15 for 10,000, and of course, right. the rate now is like one in 50-something, but it's really much closer to probably one in 20-something, I think is mm-hmm. really what it is, Yeah. but when he was diagnosed, we were living in Hawaii on the military base, and we lived in a courtyard and there was like, I think six families, six families and six families in this little courtyard. It was like a little apartments almost. And he was the third child in our courtyard that was diagnosed on the spectrum. So it was, and again, I've, I've been hearing for years and years that military children have always been more susceptible and it may be because of, you know, the previous whatever that their parents have received the vaccines and maybe priming them, you know, with some, chromosomal, I don't know, but yeah. you know, I've been reading the science for a lot of years and there is some, you know, precedence for that, that really needs to be looked at. Okay. I have one or two patients who have had no vaccines and ended up with a child on the spectrum. Right. But I have thousands 
more than a thousand patients who have ADD or ADHD or really severe to where that inattention is so severe it almost looks spectrum-like. What do you think from what you've been studying about uh, the possibility that ADD, ADHD is all part of the spectrum? I believe it is because so many times a child can have, not, you know, they can call it vaccine injury, they can call it autism, they can call it whatever they want to, but I think it's toxic overload. And then when we damage that methylation pathway, either, you know, and I think some families are just more susceptible to that than others, but I really believe that if you put enough toxins in anybody, you can cause damage. I mean, it's the same with cancer. Um, I mean, it's not the exact same thing, but we all know families that everybody in that family gets cancer. I mean, they don't have to smoke or whatever. My parents smoked both of them for 50 something years. Nobody ever, we did no cancer. There was no lung cancer. There was no throat cancer. There was no esophageal cancer. There was no cancer. So, you know, some families are more resistant than others, but there's no doubt in my mind that if you, you know, inject enough carcinogens, expose enough carcinogens in the environment. And I think that you're talking about some of these kids that were not immunized that end up on the spectrum or, you know, somewhere with this, this brain injury. It's toxins. It's toxins. You can get them from, you know, the cleaning supplies, mom putting all kinds of lotions on the baby and on herself and, you know, and then the fluoride toothpaste and the, you know, the fabric softener sheets that you're absorbing that stuff right through the skin. I truly, you know, like I said, I think some people are more genetically resistant to those things than others. But if you put enough stuff on somebody or in somebody or inject it into somebody, you can cause problems. And I, I, I do think, you know, some families are just genetically more susceptible, but the methylation pathway we know is so important. You know, the doctors back when Rob was a baby, oh, you can give Tylenol, Tylenol. If they're having any problems with the vaccines, they're uncomfortable or they run a little bit of a fever, give Tylenol. You can even give Tylenol before they show up so they'll have less discomfort well we know that's one of the things that breaks that methylation pathway that's the last thing you need to do that stuff should not even be on the market anymore with you know when I was in nursing school I was I mean I was a student and one of the patients we had this gal had taken some Tylenol for a hangover and she went into sudden liver failure to the point where they had to put her on the liver transplant list. Now she got better over time and ended up not needing a transplant plant. But I mean, she just took it for a hangover. It wasn't like she was taking it chronically or, you know, addicted to it or whatever. So, you know, again, people don't understand, even the doctors and the nurses don't understand. There's some things that we have not been taught. We've not been told. We've not been, we don't know until it happens to us or somebody we love. I never questioned vaccines. Again, I'd had plenty yeah. and I never questioned them until, you know, and I grew up in a military family. You didn't question things. I, you yeah. know, my dad was an officer and you just, yes, sir, yes, sir. That's what you did. And, and <laughs> yeah, that's you... I went into that and I didn't question until it happened to my child. And then I started looking hard and then it was like, what? I just yeah. couldn't believe it. So. You, you basically <laughs> talked about the first chapter in my book. I wrote the book, The Vaccine-Friendly Plan, and the first chapter is toxins, toxins, toxins. So that is key, folks. And acetaminophen, Tylenol, as you just mentioned, Janet, it blocks glutathione, the major detox molecule. So whatever toxins you already have in your body or you get injected with a vaccine, now it's magnified because of that Tylenol, that acetaminophen. And you're absolutely right. I used to give my kids Tylenol all the time. Here I was a pediatrician supposed to know better. I didn't, right? 
right? I mean, back when you and I had our kids, it was like candy. You just gave it out and it was, it was ridiculous. So folks, um, we can actually absolutely do better. Uh, when we know better, we do better, right? I mean, I, I know for myself, if I had to do it over again, I would do it different. How do you feel about that? Oh my God, if I could change one thing in my life, of all the mistakes I've ever made, all the things I've ever done wrong, that is the one thing I would do. I would not have immunized Rob. I would not have done that. I, I just, you know, I is just, yeah, it's just so sad what happened yeah. to him. And, you know, you saw him and he's a sweet young man. He doesn't have a lot of behaviors. He's, he's happy. He's got quality of life, but okay. He's going to be 29 years old tomorrow. He doesn't drive. He could not get his GED. So he, he really can't get a meaningful job. Right. He's, he's a burden to society. I mean, I hate to put it like that, but he gets a, a disability check every month he gets um services seven days a week 365 days of the year that the taxpayers are paying for he's not paying taxes back into the system he's not going to be in the military he's not going to go to college he's not going to be able to take care of me when i'm old he's not i mean it just he's never going to get married i'm not going to go to his wedding i can't go to a graduation he's not going i'm never going to have any grandchildren so if I could take one thing back, he would not have gotten those vaccinations. He would have gotten none. I would have worked on making sure his immune system was healthy and he would have gotten measles. He would have gotten chickenpox. He would have gotten these other mild communicable diseases and I'd have taken time off from work and taken care of him and, and he would very likely be fine today. Yeah, so. I'm sorry to ask that question. I know it's a hard thing to go back on, but you no, know, no, no. we didn't know different. And right, right. It's, it's like, we're sharing this story, folks, with you so that you can do different, right? You can make a different decision. What it takes to be healthy, as you were just mentioning, Janet, is a healthy immune system. And people think, well, vaccinating is how you have a healthy immune system. It's the exact opposite. Vaccines <laughs> overstimulate just one little part of the immune system and then shift you into autoimmunity and allergy. And then you have all these problems that are just... I mean, the magnitude and scope of the problems related to vaccines, folks, it is beyond your belief. That's what we're going to highlight on this show and make you aware of the fact that vaccines are not safe and effective. And you, as a parent, it's your duty to protect, right? Yes. Now with COVID vaccines rolling out, and I know, Janet, you and I are equally concerned about this because there is no safety testing whatsoever as far as long-term safety it's a brand new technology. They skipped animal trials and every human being on this planet who's taking those vaccines is part of a grand experiment. And the unfortunate thing is they're not enrolled in an experiment. So they're never gonna gather the data. The harm will get swept under the carpet. We're already starting to see reports coming through, right? And um, unless you have your eyes open, you're just not gonna realize that there's a connection. Right. Yes. And well, and when you look back at the, the vaccines that have been on the schedule for years for children, they, you know, they can almost all of them contain neurotoxins. Most of them contain carcinogens. You know, you wonder why, my God, we've got, all, we have all these children's hospitals for, you know, children with cancer and everybody knows a child or two or three or four with cancer. Everybody, I mean, you, it's almost like that's kind of, well, you're going to get old, you're going to have cancer. Everybody's going to have cancer. And it doesn't have to be like that. It did not it used doesn't. to be like that. It wasn't like yeah. that when we were growing up. Right. But again, if you inject everybody with known carcinogens, 
What do you think is going to happen? What do you really, I mean, are you going to be surprised when, you know, again, when you start a baby, when they're less than 24 hours old, and then at two months and four months and six months, injecting them with carcinogens, injecting them with neurotoxins, and then you're surprised when you've got a, a seizure disorder or another neurologic problem or a learning disorder or cancer or all of the above, because I've seen that again, you know, with working with, with the disability population, I saw all you kinds see it. of and I talked yeah. to these families. I used to know every family that we served until we got so large that we served hundreds and hundreds of families. I mean, really thousands over, over the course of 18 years. And so yeah. I, I don't know every single family now, but I did to start with, and I knew their stories and I knew these kids, siblings, and I say kids, but you know, kids and adults, children and adults, but yeah. You know, and I'd see the whole family history. I'd talk to these moms and I'd hear the same stories and I'd hear some that were much, much worse. So, yeah. Well, you've been a blessing to so many. And I really want to thank you for coming on our show here. Uh, this is how we can one by one reach people's hearts. And uh, in, in closing, what message would you give to our audience that maybe might resonate? People are responsible for their own health. The government is not going to give you health. Your pediatrician or your doctor is not going to give you health. You've got to understand that you've got to eat right. Make sure you're taking the supplements you need to, you know, again, vitamin D in particular right now because of COVID, but that's a great one to take all the time. Anyway, we've, I've taken it for 20 something years. You know, I just upped it a little bit with this COVID stuff because I've not worn a mask. I've been all over the place. And, you know, so again, we've got to exercise and eat right, you know, protect your immune system. That is the most important thing you own. If you damage it, just wait and see what the rest of your life is like. You know, it really, it really matters. It's once COVID's gone, when it disappears or when we all, you know, whatever, it's going to be something else and something else and something else. And, and like I point out, even if you get into a car accident, if you've got a healthy immune system, if you're eating right and you're not 150 pounds overweight and you exercise right, you're going to do better. You're going to recover easier than if you're, you know, unhealthy, smoke or 150 pounds overweight. It really does matter. You know, protect your health and don't wait on the government to give it to you because they never will. They cannot and they won't. So. Thank you, Janet. I'm going to end on that. That is beautiful. That's how I like to end. It's, it's lifestyle, folks, and you are in control of your own health. So I hope you will grab hold of that right that's yours. So. Thank you so much for coming on my show. Appreciate you. you. God bless you. Thanks, you too. Bye-bye. It's my pleasure today to welcome to you Jack Lyonsweiler, a good friend of mine who has been instrumental in helping me get the data from my practice out to the world in a very important vaxxed unvaxxed study that we're going to be talking about in just a moment. But to set things up a little bit for you, he wrote a very important book, The Environmental Causes of Autism. And that was sort of when I realized, wow, I mean, the, the science that went into that was amazing. He's extremely well published in peer reviewed literature and was able to help me do something I couldn't do, which was to usher the data that I had through the process of peer review. So just to sort of set up how we went about this, I'd like to mention that the most important study he helped me publish initially and a lot of heavy lifting on his part was the aluminum study where he compared in a theoretical model, the amount of aluminum a child would experience in their first two, three years of life following the CDC schedule compared to the vaccine friendly plan, which is outlined in my book. 
So in that particular study, we were able to show that in the first seven months of life, a child on the CDC schedule will spend 30 to 70% of those seven months above the toxic line for aluminum. 30 to 70% folks, that's nuts. On the vaccine friendly plan, it's still 6% above toxic levels. So what I say to people is even the vaccine friendly plan is not friendly enough. But Jack, let's get into the real study. The reason I wanted you on today, the vaxxed unvaxxed study. Um, Set that up for us, if you will. Yeah, absolutely. So as uh, many people know, but not everyone knows, uh, the CDC and its contractees have refused to do a study of people who, children who are fully vaccinated versus fully unvaccinated or partially vaccinated. They just won't look at the unvaccinated kids. And Paul's practice, by the way that he um, follows the rule of law in the state of Oregon to, you know, respect parental consent, provide informed consent, provide information of, of, of risk. <laughs> he actually will talk about family history and things like that. Actually developed into a study. It, it produced 10 and a half years of data that were ripe for analysis uh, because there we had not just people who were vaccinated and unvaccinated, we also had people that were variably vaccinated. And that's why the title of the paper is along the axis of vaccination. But the number of health outcomes that we were able to get data for was outstanding. So, you know, when you came to me and said, hey, listen, I think we have a study here, I jumped on it. It was a perfect setup for yeah. an objective study. I might just let our viewers know it was... January of 2019, the medical board actually in Oregon said, prove that your vaccine friendly plan is as safe as the CDC schedule. And I thought to myself, well, this is weird. There's never been any proof that the CDC schedule is safer than doing nothing, but oh, well, let's do it. So I commissioned a quality assurance analysis of my data. And it was that data set that was every baby born into my practice from the day I opened in June, 2008, to the day we closed the data set, January 27th, 2019, mm -hmm. representing 10 and a half years of data. We had it de-identified. And then basically I handed this data set to this gentleman here that we're talking with to do the deep, heavy dive, heavy lifting, because we were both blinded completely to everything. It was just raw data. So take it from there, Jack. How did you go about sorting through this massive amount of data to getting to a, a final paper and, and publishable information? Well, first of all, I want to take you back to the conversation that we had. I think it was by telephone when I said, you know, Paul, IPAC was established to do independent and objective research. And if I find that the kids who are vaccinated are less healthy or more healthy than the kids that don't vaccinate, I, if I'm going to be involved in this, we have to be able to publish whatever we find. You started laughing. <laughs> <laughs> well, so I had started, to say, you, you I started to laughing because you said, yeah, um, I think we know what we're going to find, but that wasn't based on a survey of all of the data that was based on your, what I was seeing empirical experience right. called right. observational observation. Data. Right. You, and, yeah. And real you bring up a real, counts. yeah, you bring up a really good point. So I've been doing pediatrics for over 30 years 
And the last 10, 15 years, I'm just seeing in my day-to-day work, I mean, I have a practice with over 15,000 active patients most of the time, and we just kept seeing the unvaxxed kids are just so incredibly healthy. But when I would say that to somebody, they were, oh, sure, you know, show me the data. And that was my dilemma. I didn't have the data. And so actually, even the the doctor who came in and did my uh, quality analysis he, he had that same concept that you presented, Jack. He says, well, I don't know what we're going to find. I, he kind of was, we'll see. And the first day he comes out, he goes, oh, my gosh, it just jumps out at you. I said, what are you talking about? He says, your unvaxxed patients just don't get sick. So anyway, so you're, you're digging into the data. Well, right. So what he's talking about is just the patterns of the ones and zeros, right? So all you have to do in the, in the data set, and the, the, there was no statistical analysis done by this guy. He simply produced a spreadsheet uh, that said, here's the vaccinated up here, here's the unvaccinated on there. And you could just see where the, where the, where the, where the numbers were and where the, were, there were blanks. It was just a pattern of recognition by his brain. And it is shocking. And, and, and it is that, you know, robust. That's how robust these results are. So you wanted me to discuss um, the deep dive, right? Yeah, take us through the paper real quick. Absolutely. So like any other, you know, observational study where you have a case control study or you have different health outcomes, right? If I'm studying cancer and I'm going to look at the people that responded to chemotherapy or not, you you structure the data so that you have, you know, group A versus group B, right? So just like just like our friend did who did the data poll, right? I I put the data into group A and group B in the spreadsheet. And then I realized when I, um, one of the data columns had the, um, I was able to cut, ca- I was able to calculate and just count the number of vaccines that each patient had. And when I looked at those numbers, it, it varied so much that the very first thing that I did was I said, okay, I'm going to rank these patients, both of the groups, right? Unvaccinated. We're not going to rank it all at zero that they're all zero, but in the vaccinated, I'm going to rank them from highest vaccination to lowest vaccination. And what that does is it provides us with the opportunity anyway, to look at vaccine uptake, right? So in in designing the analysis, it's very straightforward then to say, okay, now we have this, this coordinate to vaccine uptake that we've got the most vaccinated over here and the least vaccinated over here. What, health outcomes are associated along that axis. We can certainly do vaxxed on vaxxed here, but I was really interested in what's the effect of total vaccine uptake. So the first round of analysis, we looked at it and we said, okay, and you, if you look at the paper, there's a couple of rounds of analysis. So I wanna say every piece of analysis that we did, we published. It's, this isn't a cherry picked set of results. We published everything. I realized that we could look at it, not just in terms of health outcomes with incidents, we could actually look at the cost to the patient in terms of the number of times that they have to come to the doctor's office for care associated with, say, asthma. And knowing that that those are billable, I called you up and I said, hey, Paul, are these numbers of office visits, are those actual billed visits? Do we have the actual evidence if we get audited that each one of these data points, oh, yes, you said that there's a provenance of data passed with flying colors. So yeah, it's backed up redundantly. There's evidence. If there's an audit on the data at Paul's office, not a problem. Point for point. Yeah. It hundred percent is bill- billable. You cannot cheat on billable information. <laughs> That's the so, best data. So, yeah. So what you did there was so clever in the sense of 
just showing people the magnitude of the severity of a condition. Uh, you know, asthma is a good example. ADD, ADHD is another. If it's very mild, you know, you're slightly inattentive, but you really don't need much help from a doctor. We may not see you again. You know, they, it's a mild case. Or you've got a child who's coming in multiple times a year for multiple adjustments of their medications, or in the case of asthma, you know, a lot of visits for severity. So this was a, a, an approach that allowed us to see the severity of the condition, not just a yes, no. That's right. And when you have that measure like that, it has a, a, what's called the technical term, it has a, 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 um, a, a larger dynamic range, right? So if you have a measure that's just yes or no, yes or no, it, it'd be great to be able to say yes, um, medium, intermediate, high, you know, low, intermediate, high, even that would be more sensitive. And so what we've really done is we've said, okay, there's the severity of it that's in there. We're actually looking at the disease burden as right. well as the incidence. Right. And all these past studies that didn't look at this statistic the, this way, they didn't measure the incidence of office visit, they kind of were fighting the, asking the question with one hand tied behind their back. They're kind of blinded to the severity. So if if there is, no, it could have gone either way, right? We have to say this. It could have gone either way where the vaccinated kids who were most vaccinated had fewer office visits. They only came in for the well child visit. And that, oh, by the way, yeah, it's time for your asthma uptake, right? It's time to update your this, or let's check them for this other condition. But these were build visits that were specifically for that condition. Right, right. So just looking at it that way, um, the question then became, all right, yeah, look at that. We see the kids that are getting more vaccines, the more vaccines that they take, the uh, more often they have to go to the doctors for allergic rhinitis, sinitis. Right. right so, so, so Jack, how did you control for the possibility that maybe my unvaxxed patients just don't come in for care? Well, the first thing was I asked you um, whether or not your patients buy a particular brand of magic raisins right? That, that they, they just feed their kids magic raisins. And no, that's a joke. But seriously, there's a serious question here where there's a potential confounder that the parents who don't vaccinate might also just issue or avoid coming to the doctor whatsoever. And that makes sense. If you're not a pediatrician in, whose name is Paul Thomas and you have patients that love you and you have patients, parents that love you and the parents that came to your practice specifically because they trust you, right? right. They came to your practice to make a relationship with you. They trust yeah. you. They were, re they were booted out or they were refused care by other doctors. And of course, they're going to trust you and the other physicians there. So, you know, what we have is the possibility of a confounder. But the thing of it is in observational studies, you could always think of a confounder. In fact, for any observational study, this is one of the conundrums of doing observational studies only and why CDC really, really, really should have done a vaxxed unvaccinated randomized clinical trial for four or five years and just randomly not vaccinated anybody matching for all these conditions and all these other variables um, is, is because you know we can't infer causality from correlation. It, it, no matter how strong the correlation, you can find a confounder that, okay, anybody can think of a confounder. I call them imaginary confounders. Well, what about this? What about maybe these, maybe these people eat burnt toast? And that's why I brought up magic raisins, right? The sure. point is, if you have 100 people searching for confounders in an observational study, someone's going to find one. 
Someone's going to find something. Look, all these people drive, tend to drive blue or yellow cars. All of these people, you know, tend to, right? And so just because you can think of a potential confounder does not mean that that confounder invalidates the finding of the study. Right. And this is something that I've carried through hundreds of research studies that I've done, some many of which were observational. This is not new. I'm not just some guy that fell off of the back of the turnip truck. <laughs> You know, no, you've done a lot of studies. So in our study, Jack, you looked at fever compared to well visits, I believe, yeah. as, a, as a way of sort of answering that question. What did you find? Yeah. So in addition to the argumentation, which is very important because that's really, you know, got to take, take that one on by the horns. Um, the, the expectation is that if there is this kind of an effect, then people who except a low amount of vaccines, say 5% vaccinated, according to the schedule, your, you know, your recommendations, and people who are up to 95th percentile in the, in the vaccine uptake, should have the same amount of office visits for fever if there's no causality of fever from vaccines. Now, we know that there's causality. We know fevers cause fever, uh, fever vaccines cause fever, and therefore we know that that's a positive control. If we see an increase in the incidence of office visits related to fever, then those parents to be billed for fever, hey, my kid has a fever, those parents are coming there because of the vaccine. That's not controversial. That's universally accepted. And so we had a positive control. And then and we found the data. That. Yeah, and we found yeah. that. That's yeah. the first result that we found. Boom. Okay, yeah. no problem. The second result that we found provided a negative control on this. And we found that the people that are just taking low amounts of vaccines have the same amount of healthcare visits, you know, billed for relative to the unvaccinated uh, uh, as the most vaccinated. And so that's a flat line. So whereas fever increases, healthcare visits for well child visits, those are called, um, those are those are flat line. And so there is not an effect of increased vaccine uptake on the utilization of your healthcare services. No way, that's yeah. not there. Yeah, that was, it was good that you helped show that because that was my sense. I mean, my patients, as you pointed out, they trust us, they're coming in for all their care. And, um, you know, we proved that was the case. So, so let's get maybe right to the meat of the findings uh, and just roll through for our, our listeners here, which medical conditions were found more frequently in greater severity in which population? Okay, so um, looking at the uh, vaccine uptake, the first thing that we had to do is we had to say we have two groups of different sizes. We had uh, 2,763 people that uh, were vaccinated. We had 561 who were unvaccinated. So for counting the number of office visits, we have to adjust for the group size. So we did that. So all the comparisons that we did account for group size. There's no, there, there's no problem with that. What we found was once we uh, accommodated for group size was that almost everything that we looked at, it seemed, uh, the more vaccines they had received, the more office visits that they required for asthma, allergy, allergic rhinitis, sinusitis, um, that, anemia. ADD, ADHD. Yeah, anemia was a big one. We'll eye talk about infections, anemia. ear pain, just about respiratory, anything we looked at. Lots of respiratory infections. Yep. Okay, that one was huge. Respiratory infections really surprised me, right? So what's going on with respiratory infections? 
it's it's an unknown, but we know that vaccines alter the immune system. Mm-hmm. And we're seeing evidence now with coronavirus that there may be a problem. Uh, and we've, we've seen it with other, uh, with viral, viral interference where pathogen interference, where the immune system is busy dealing with the virus or the pathogen and the vaccine, perhaps they become more susceptible to pathogens that are not targeted by that. Now, there are people that will say, oh, it's no problem. We see millions of pathogens every day, yada, yada. Though we, we don't see millions of new pathogens every day. <laughs> we see millions of pathogens for which we're already immune. If we saw millions of patho- new pathogens every day of our life, we'd be constantly having, you know, fever, and, you know, not getting yeah. sick. So, um, so that was an interesting finding, Jack, because yeah. that's been my observation, even in my staff. So I have a couple nurses who never get the flu shot and they never get sick. It's like, what? I mean, we're around all the sickest kids, so we're clearly getting exposed. Right. And it, it's, I think we now know some of the mechanisms whereby vaccines are causing challenges to our immune system. It's you know pushing it towards allergy and autoimmunity. And like you said, you wonder whether if you're busy fighting, let's just use COVID as an example, and a particular strain that's in that vaccine, and now you're hearing in the news, new strains, new strains, new strains, will you maybe be less able to fight new strains than the unvaccinated person? Based on this data that we have, you could extrapolate and guess you might be in worse shape by getting the COVID vaccine. Now, that's just a theory. Obviously, we didn't study that. But back to this paper, um, how... Before we go, I wanted to mention that there are published studies that show, like Ben Cowling out of uh, Hong Kong, his team showed that if you get the flu shot, you're more likely to get non-influenza respiratory virus mm-hmm. infections for the next two years. Yep. And so there are independent studies that show that. And I trace that to thimerosal in the flu shot. In that study, they used a thimerosal-containing uh, uh, vaccine. Thimerosal inhibits a protein that we use in our immune system to fold the proteins that make us immune to other pathogens. So it doesn't even have to be a new pathogen. It's possible that the flu shot actually wipes out your ability to create the proteins. You still have the adaptive memory. You still are trying to produce the proteins, but thimerosal in that last dose of the flu could knock it out for a couple of years where you're more susceptible to things that you already had. So that's not good. No, if you're going to get a flu shot, folks, make sure it's thimerosal free. Right now in the world, 80% of flu shots have thimerosal. They're the multi-dose vials. It's just a horrendous idea to be injecting mercury, thimerosal's mercury in this day and age. But back to our study to wrap it up, Jack, what level of significance would you give to this data? Because, you know, that's always something people are going to ask. Right. So if you look at the data, we found zero ADHD in the... um, unvaccinated. You don't have to be a statistician to put a level of significance on that. (laughs) It's bizarre. It's it's bizarre because it's objectively collected data. If it were biased data, you know, and sure, I believe, I I, I trust the. I mean, I I understand the people that would say there's got to be something wrong with that. It's shocking. It really is shocking, but you can't get zero ADHD from manipulating the data, right? The data came to me. The counts were there. I did not change the data, nothing, nothing like that. Nothing funny went, went, went on uh, in my analysis. Uh, and then anemia popped out and that's a new finding. And I think a lot of people that are concerned or say even involved in vaccine research or in childhood illnesses, these mysterious childhood illnesses that we're finding, I can't, I can't imagine if kids are made anemic by aluminum, which we know that they could be because aluminum binds to transferrin 
And transferrin is the molecule that's supposed to be, the protein that's supposed to be there waiting for the dietary iron to go make your red blood cells. But if you've got a three-month-old infant and they've been injected with a, a doses of aluminum and they're anemic and you don't know it, there's every possibility that that child is not going to be able to power the brain development, power the immune system development in, a, in, a, in an appropriate way because those programs need oxygen. Yeah. And Jack, it, this anemia finding is so important, as you pointed out. You know, for 30 years as a pediatrician, we're taught to screen for anemia at nine months in, because it's a fairly common thing. We were not taught the why of it all right? Yeah. It was just that you screen for it. And the interesting thing was when you find anemia, which is fairly common in a vaccinated population, very rare in our unvaxxed, as we showed, we give iron because we just know that it's an iron deficiency. Well, we've now shown that no, it's probably an aluminum binding to the transfer molecule. So you can't bind that iron. And in, yeah. indeed, it is very difficult to get anemia to respond, even though it looks like iron deficiency anemia when you do all the parameters. So there's, right. So, so, so it, it may be just a tipping point in terms of hypoxia in the brain, right? There are certain particular programs that kick in at, during the, the fetal development and during brain development of infants that have to be properly nourished. That's why nutrition is so important. And they have to be powered by oxygen. And without the oxygen, it's quite possible we're literally starving our children's brains for oxygen. So oxygen levels, blood oxygen levels are very important. You know, I'm thinking about the cases in the National Vaccine Injury Compensation Program where these poor parents and the family members and siblings had to lose a baby. The baby died in their sleep, SIDS and so on. Well, how do we know that the reason why kids don't die is because they're not oxygen, you know, starved that way in the brain? They just go to sleep, and you know, seizures. What happens when if you if you have low low oxygen? You're going to go into seizures. So we really don't know everything that we should know, and that's the nature of science. Science gives us indications that say, hey, you want to look over here. This is weird. This is strange. You want to. This is there's something interesting here. Follow up on it. So I really hope that the rest of pediatric science takes a good close look. Par uh, iron, you know, high iron paradoxical anemia is really a thing, uh, but actually looking at the effects on, on brain development um, and, and what do we do about it? If a kid has low oxygen and we don't, and, and we can discover that clinically, what do you do about it? What do you tell the parent to do? So how do you, how do you take care of it? And if it's attributed to aluminum, of course, let's get aluminum out of vaccines. There are other ways to approach this. Absolutely. So, so in closing, Jack, one last thought I wanted to run by you. I'm going to play naysayer here. So you're not saying that we should just stop vaccinating. What would happen? Surely you must realize that Dr. Paul is putting his patients in danger if he lets them not vaccinate. What did uh, well, you find about that? These diseases for which we have vaccines? Well, there, 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 was, there was a small number of um, um, conditions where the data showed that the, 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 the kids that were not getting the vaccines had a couple of ticks higher, right? Then, then um, it, it, I don't recall all of them, but I think varicella was one, chickenpox yeah, was one. We had, a, we had a few cases of chickenpox, which is a harmless condition. Uh, and then we had a, a few cases of pertussis, whooping cough. Nobody got in any trouble with these diseases. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah, they, they did and, just. And fine. You had a you had a, a rotavirus case that was not 
what, what, that, that, that was yeah, we've had like, I think three wrote twins and one other case of rotavirus. Although if you think about a practice, the size of mine to have had only three cases of rotavirus that ended up in the hospital, yeah. um, that's probably better than the norm for a vaccinated population, to be honest. Right. And so while the study was only uh, 3,400 or so patients, your study was 15,000 over 10, 10, 10 and a half years. I mean, your, your practice was My practice, 15,000. Yeah. And, and that means that there are other unvaccinated families around. There are some families that started vaccinated but quit. Maybe a kid had one or two vaccines and then they quit, you know, somewhere else. And then they came to see you. So, but by far and large, all of the vaccine preventable diagnoses, which is what I like to call them, right. were zero in the unvaccinated and zero in the vaccinated. Correct. Now, the, the, the counter argument to that is going to be, well, yeah, that's because of herd immunity, because he, the, the rest of the population is kind of vaccinated, right? And then the answer to that is, show us that that's the case. Right. Show us that the Suzanne Humphreys book right? Contained so many figures. The CDC website contained so many figures that show the actual reduction in mortality due to these conditions dropped, plummeted way before the, way the vaccines to practically nothing before the vaccines for them were introduced. Yeah. Yeah. So there is no evidence in this study of increased risk of harm from vaccine preventable diagnoses. Correct. And um, we shall end with that, folks. We're going to have a link to this paper uh, in, in this show for you. And, and Jack, I want to thank you for taking your time to go over the study so carefully with our audience. And we're going to have you back on to go in detail on the aluminum issue, which I know you've written and published a lot about, and so much more. You'll be one well, of yeah, our- we've got we've got more studies coming. We've, we're, we're not done with the data. There's still more studies coming. So watch for that. More information coming, folks. So again, share this study with everybody you can. Print it off and take it to your doctor, if you're especially a pediatrician who is trying to get you to follow the CDC schedule and just at least have them look at the data because this data is mind-blowing and you are not hearing it on the local news. That's right. Yeah. Thanks, Jack. Thank you, Paul. Well, welcome to the part of the show where I get to introduce to you Bernadette Pager. She is the Public Policy Director of Informed Choice Washington, a nonprofit dedicated to the scientific integrity of public health policy, medical freedom, and informed consent. On our show, Against the Wind, Doctors in Science Under Fire, she's our expert, or at least has stepped up to the plate to play the role of bringing you what's latest in the news. Hi, well, yeah, thank you for having me on. And I I just wanna say that I'm uncomfortable with the word expert in regards to what I know and, and what I can do, but I consider myself a very informed citizen. And that's what we all need to to be. COVID-19 vaccine concerns, and then also COVID-19 vaccine treatments are what I would like to discuss. There's three sort of main categories that people are looking at for the vaccine concerns. We've got PEG and polysorbate, which are two of the ingredients, uh, lipid nanoparticles, and the mRNA itself. PEG, polyethylene glycol, is in many things. It's in many cosmetics. It's in many, many medications. And because it is so um, common, the, the exposure is so common, that also means that there's an awful lot of people in the population that have sensitivities to it. That's just how it works. But people may not know 
how sensitive they are because if the only place they're being exposed is say a cosmetic and they know I can't buy that brand of lipstick because it make, gives me a rash. They don't realize that they are, you know, have this severe potential allergy. Um, and then so, of course, if you inject, it becomes very serious potentially. Yeah, it, right? it, it certainly does. We've got this brand new novel vaccine with these lipid nanoparticles delivering PEG and polysorbate in a way the immune system hasn't seen before. And there is a, a major concern that it's going to induce allergies to these. If they weren't allergic before, they may be allergic after. Right. You know, so, so, you know, so many people have allergies and they may not be making the connection. If your yeah. symptoms are runny nose, itchy eyes or GI distress, or obviously eczema, dry skin, hives, any kind of skin rash, mm -hmm. you might know that or suspect you're allergic or sensitive to something. You don't likely know that it's polyethylene glycol, PEG or polysorbate when it might be. And unfortunately, nobody's doing pre-testing before you get your COVID vaccine to see whether or not you are at increased risk. And that's just a problem with this, the way this is being rolled out on such an emergency basis. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, one fact gets absolutely ignored um, in vaccine communication. And that's the fact that in 1913, Charles Riche won a Nobel Prize went for his research and for coining the term anaphylaxis. What he discovered was a certain percentage of the population, if they are injected with anything, may have a hyper um, sensitivity reaction or develop an allergy or the most severe form would be anaphylaxis. They only discovered this with the invention of the hypodermic needle. And all vaccine researchers, all um, medical researchers who are trying to administer um, drugs and medication through injection are aware of this. The other ingredient, you know, is the lipid nanoparticles. You know, this too is a fairly new technology. It's been used in some experimental um, products. It's been used in some, um, uh, I believe, drug cancer therapies. But there is an awful lot of concern. ICANN inquires with the FDA about the safety of lipid nanoparticles used in Pfizer's and Moderna's COVID-19 vaccines. A concern arose when ICANN was alerted to a study published in 2018 titled Lipid Nanoparticles, a Novel Approach for Brain Targeting. The study states lipid nanoparticles are taken up readily by the brain because of their lipophilic nature. The bioacceptable and biodegradable nature of lipid nanoparticles makes them suited for brain targeting. The article also states these nanostructures need to be investigated intensively to successfully reach the clinical trial stage. Well, that was in 2018, and, and that, that science has not yet been done. Um, and so animal models have shown that when you inject an animal with a lipid nanoparticle with its cargo of mRNA, it will travel everywhere in the body. Yeah. It will end up in the brain, in the spleen, in the kidneys, in the liver. And what happens when it sets up a spike protein factory in those locations? We just don't know. Yeah, it's, it's super high risk and it hasn't been studied. Every cell in your body basically has a lipid membrane. That's what keeps the cell together. And you have the ability now to get into every cell with this mm -hmm. technology. 
And well, what if your immune system goes, wait a minute, you don't belong here. And now you've got an immune reaction against whatever part of your body that, that it, I mean, potentially, right? So the, the, the possibility for autoimmunity alone is just humongous. Your immune system that's always there. The first time you encounter something, um, your immune system has some some general things, it, general soldiers it kicks into gear no matter what it sees. And one of those is inflammation, right? Yep. And it's known that when you inject somebody with a, a lipid nanoparticle, it creates an inflammation reaction and a cytokine reaction. It, it, something's wrong here, I'm under attack, and it pulls up those general so foot soldiers and off they go. It's immunologic memory that appears to be playing a role here. It's an augmented response to the second exposure. It's not known how often you can be injected with a lipid nanoparticle. Is this going to, if would like a third dose, like if the next season you get another one of these things, oh, we just boy. don't know. We don't know. So there's a lot of experimentation going on folks. And you may not be aware that's the case. These COVID vaccines, this go around skipped the animal trials. And that's the tragic fatal mistake, I believe, because this whole thing of immune memory and pathogenic priming uh, would have been picked up in animal trials as happened in the past when they tried to make vaccines for SARS and MERS, the other coronaviruses that were most similar to the COVID-2. Yeah. So uh, we're just going to have to watch for what might happen. And so when you see things happening, folks, know that it's related. It's not just a coincidence that you're having all these horrible side effects from people who are getting these vaccines. They just weren't studied properly and they were rushed to market way too fast. And I, I do want to state just to be as clear as possible of my understanding is they didn't completely skip animal models. They did some animal model testing in parallel with human testing. So the humans and the mice were being treated at the same time. But people who have uh, scientists who have done a deep dive and looked carefully at the animal models that they did, they were not designed in a way to tell if this um, immune memory reaction or the enhanced disease, I get to that in just a bit here, would happen. So the biggest question leading into this um, was not answered in the, in the animal models that were done in parallel with the humans. Um, and that's where we get to this next one. So we get to the mRNA, mRNA and spike protein concerns. So for 20 years, they've been trying to make a coronavirus vaccine. They would love to do this because it would be everybody in the planet. There's so many coronaviruses and everybody gets them. Um, but they've never had luck because it has always caused something called disease enhancement or what Dr. James Lyons Weiler called, and it sound, it's much more accurate, pathogenic priming. So when they did animal models, as you were saying, the um, animals seem to be protected until they expose them to um, the wild infection or even a cousin of the wild infection they were targeting. And then they had a much worse case, a very severe to fatal case, because it primed them to have an over- exaggerated response. Dr. Tony Fauci said himself um, way back in March that he was aware this is a poss possibility and we're going to have to watch for it. And this was their list of unknowns on the day they gave it emergency use. They didn't know duration of immunity. 
They didn't know effectiveness and safety in kids and pregnant women. They didn't know subgroup variability and effectiveness or safety. They didn't know long-term vaccine adverse events. They didn't know the effect on asymptomatic infection or infectiousness. They didn't know the effect in previously infected patients. This whole idea of vaccinating people who've already had a natural infection flies against any common sense we've had in the past when it comes to vaccines, natural infections, and what our immune system does in response to a natural infection versus a vaccine. We've always had a more robust immune response and more lasting immunity from natural infections. We have to wait and get that information because if you start just vaccinating everybody, then you wipe out basically the, the data that we yeah. would need to show that natural infections, the way to go folks. Exactly. I mean, yeah. this is, it's, it's like we understand that unvaccinated people are actually having better health outcomes and there's going to be no question people who get natural COVID infection and natural immunity will do much better when they see different variations, which are coming yes. because this is a virus that mutates very easily. So instead of going to a new flu shot, a new COVID shot every year, which is going to be disastrous, most likely you get natural infection cross protection at a much greater rate. So then we move into what they consider their moderate concerns, which is really almost laughable that they put at the top of their moderate, not high priority, enhanced respiratory disease. What? They did not determine prior to emergency use authorization, whether or not sort of the chief concern of these coronavirus vaccines is whether or not they're going to cause enhanced respiratory disease or pathogenic priming. That it's just bizarre to me. And here we have state public health departments putting out messaging that was partially paid for by the Gates Foundation saying these vaccines are, have been proven safe and effective. You, you need to get it, do your bit for your community. It's, it's so appalling. And all you have to do is actually go pay attention to the meetings and read the information instead of listening to the commercials, right? Yeah. Um, yeah, they don't know the rest of this protection against long-term COVID risks. They don't know the efficacy with viral changes. They don't even know if it's going to impact mortality, whether it's going to reduce mortality. Folks, we don't know anything. We don't Is that know clear? <laughs> <laughs> but just, let's just take it anyway. I'm yeah. sure it'll be good for you. Oh my word. I want to just briefly go over nutrients. They're all important. Um, I, I do want to point out that, you know, vitamin D rises to the top. And we'll talk about that a bit. There's so much evidence now, so many studies showing that there is a direct correlation between vitamin D status and disease severity and fatality. What are your thoughts on vitamin D? This is the one supplement, folks, you don't want to go without. And here's the problem with a lot of studies. I'll just point out two things. The dose matters, right? If you give a study where they're taking 200 or 400 international units a day, when really an adult needs 5,000 international units, of course, the vitamin D didn't do anything. They weren't doing using an adequate dose. Secondly, it's best to take vitamin D with K2. And I'll tell you why, because without it, it may actually cause some mischief in of itself. One of the things vitamin D does is it helps you absorb calcium. Well, if you absorb a massive amount of calcium and that's circulating in your veins and you're building plaques, atherosclerotic plaques, let's say, that might actually cause some long-term increased mortality. But if you take it with K2, the job of K2 is to get that added calcium that you absorbed into your bones where it belongs. 
bones is your bank account for calcium. So take your D3 with K2, take an adequate dose and check your levels so you know. You want your vitamin D levels in the optimal range, which is usually 50 to 80 on the units we use here in the United States. Just look at the normal range and aim for the top third of that range. That's what you want for your vitamin D levels. It, the studies are robust and there's so many of them. We know it helps you prevent cancer. We know it reduces infection, boosts your immune system. It's the one supplement you should absolutely not leave home without. And then, so our final thing is coming down to ivermectin, which has been in the news quite a bit. What do you know about this product? Um, well, it's, a, it's for, uh, originally used for treating parasites, but they've found it to really be helpful in this situation. Ivermectin has now been added to this list of things that you should consider that seem to be making a huge difference. But it's interesting. He talks about mechanism of action and they believe that it works at the preventive level by um, binding with a spike protein. So it will prevent infection, but it also... Um, addresses inflammation if you are sick and, and at later stages. So unlike hydroxychloroquine, which has to be given very early, you know, with zinc in order to be effective, it appears that ivermectin, even at late stage, because it addresses that inflammation, seems to be helpful at that stage too. And yeah. here are some websites. Thank you for putting these together. These are the top resources for the information that you need that you're not getting when you're watching mainstream media, pharma funded news, etc. cetera. Uh, thank you, Bernadette, for bringing this all to our attention. Children's Health Defense, they're incredible. The High Wire is another great resource. And of course, NIVC. So uh, you, you did a wonderful service to our viewers. And I thank you so much for this uh, segment of our show. Thanks, Bernadette. Oh, you're welcome. We'll see you next week. See you next week. Thanks for watching. I pledge to you to bring to you honest and vital content that's going to help you first do no harm to yourself or to your children. Help me spread the truth and share this on social media and with your friends at doctorsandscience.com. This is going to be a show every other week, and as soon as we get adequate funding, we're going to bring this to you weekly. We stand together for medical freedom and informed consent. Only you should decide what's injected into your body. So I look forward to running with you against the wind. Go to our website, doctorsandscience.com, sign up, donate if you can, and let's make this the weekly show the nation's been waiting for. I'm Dr.